All right. And now we're going to have a reading from the scriptures. Listen, children, to the instruction of a parent and be attentive to no understanding. For I give you good instruction. Do not forsake my teaching. I was still a child with my father and my mother's only child. And I was taught, and it was said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and you shall live. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will preserve you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Acquire wisdom, and whatever else you acquire, acquire insight. Esteem her, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will present to you a glorious crown. Hear my child and receive my words, that the years of your life may be many. In the way of wisdom have I taught you. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hindered, and when you run, you will not stumble. Hold fast to instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm your lead pastor here at Zao. It's so lovely to be with you today. Uh, we are talking today about wisdom. A couple weeks ago, this came up in one of our readings, uh, and we started to talk about wisdom as kind of like a fourth part of the Trinity, um, that, that, you know, wonderful, always recognized fourth part of a three-part <laughs> concept. Um, and, and wisdom is like this femme concept as well, which is really interesting. But we have, throughout the scriptures, we've got lots of different genres of material, right? We have histories, we have epic poems, we have love stories and love poems, we have teaching and instruction in the letters. But there's a whole genre in the scriptures called wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is the collections of ideas, sayings, offerings passed down from one generation to the next about how to live and how to live well. And this passage from the book of Proverbs, which is wisdom literature, offers this extremely helpful starting point. It says, the beginning of wisdom is this, acquire wisdom. <laughs> Super helpful, guys. <laughs> Man, we thought Jesus was being cryptic when he was like doing parables. <laughs> Here's how you get wisdom, get some wisdom. <laughs> Now, unfortunately, a lot of the wisdom literature toggles between like very broad, vague, like how you get wisdom is to have wisdom, is to seek wisdom. How you seek wisdom is to understand wisdom and get further insight, right? And then it's like, uh, wise is the person who like turns left on Tuesdays and hops up and down and looks over their shoulder. Like, it's this very back and forth thing in the book of Proverbs between highly specific and maybe not always true, right? Because it can't be universalized. And so universal as to be, like, almost meaningless. <laughs> wisdom can be a bit tricky. Wisdom can be a little bit 
flummoxing. And I think that's partly because wisdom is a kind of understanding that doesn't have the same texture or taste as the kind of A plus B equals C logic of empire. Empire wants things to be in these like really ordered, you know, like Ikea assembly steps, right? And one of the reasons is because it's very easy to follow those instructions. And so when we're in a system of domination, we need instructions that we can follow. We need marching orders. But the wisdom of the Lord is a fundamentally different kind of understanding. And the beginning of wisdom is to acquire wisdom. The text goes on to talk about understanding and insight. But what it describes is a kind of openness, a kind of receptivity. And when we look at the things that are said about wisdom, one of the repeated phrases is, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Now, fear of the Lord might be kind of a difficult phrase for us, right? We actually here don't want to be afraid of God. Many of us have spent a lot of our lives afraid of God or being taught to be afraid of God or being taught to love God, but also be constantly terrified at the threat of God's punishment. We reject all of those frameworks here at Zao. I don't think that's what the scripture is teaching. But fear of the Lord is our best attempt at describing something in English that is not originally in English. Something that is close to fear, uh, or what we translate as fear, is the word awe, awe of the Lord. It's where we get the word awesome. <laughs> Again, awesome in English maybe doesn't have the weight that this original thought had. Because saying that the Lord is awesome is true, <laughs> but it doesn't carry the depth, the gravity of looking at the divinity in the world and being overwhelmed with awe. And when we think about how awe, that feeling of overwhelming awe, that feeling that may make you tremble, that feeling that may remind you how much bigger God is than any one piece of creation, that may be akin to fear, but it is not afraid. It is odd. That is the beginning of wisdom. And that feeling, that awe, that overwhelm, seeking after it, acquiring it, not running from it, not hiding from it, not, not shoving it to the back of the mind because, wow, I can't even comprehend, but actually going after it, finding that feeling that reminds you of the fullness of God and who you are in the mix of all of creation. This is the beginning of wisdom. Now, wisdom, like I said, is a word um, that we have in English for this fourth, often referred to as the fourth part of the Trinity, Sophia. Wisdom is God. But wisdom is our understanding of God from a very particular angle. Sophia is feminine. Sophia is maybe a feminist understanding of God and God's personhood. And in Sophia, in wisdom, we experience God. Because the beginning of wisdom is the awe 
the overwhelm, the trembling at the knowledge of God's fullness, that feeling in our bodies and our spirits of the wholeness of God. That is wisdom. The wisdom literature then tries to point us toward that. How can we live our lives not only opening ourselves to the awe, to the beauty, to the power of God, but living in accordance with it? What does that awe teach us for how we ought to live, how we ought to treat one another, how we ought to build a life in alignment with all of that divinity in which we stand in awe? Well, wisdom literature has a lot of suggestions. Now, some of those suggestions directly contradict each other, which means that we have to, again, pay attention. What is the context here? Whose wisdom are we listening to? This kind of wisdom is more of a street smarts versus book smarts energy. And we see this in the wisdom literature, that this kind of wisdom is earned. It can be taught, but it must be taught through relationship. It can be learned, but it must be learned through experience, through life, through connection. Wisdom is not an idea. It is a way of being. And this understanding, this way of being, is hard-earned through life and struggle and relationship. It is passed along, passed along a lineage, received from others who have earned it through their lives before us so that we may come alive. Wisdom is your grandmother who just knows. Wisdom is your auntie who understands how this works. Wisdom is your older sister who learned the hard way. Wisdom is the gift of women in the scriptures. And wisdom is a kind of tradition. Now, when I say the words tradition and traditional, I want to take a quick poll here. I'm going to ask who has largely positive connotations with tradition and traditional, and who has largely negative connotations. Ready? All right, show me who feels mostly positive about tradition and traditional. Show of hands. We've got, all right, some people, mostly, mostly mediums. All right, who has largely negative connotations with tradition and traditional? All right, a strong majority. <laughs> a strong majority. We're going we're gonna to do a little, little shouting out here. What are some of the things you associate with tradition or traditional? Conservative, oppression, Christmas cookies, damnation, outdated, say it again, cishet white, yeah. Now, when we think of what is tradition or what is traditional, we often have two categories. Christmas cookies, I would put in the, this is a tradition of my relationships, this is something that I remember in my body and my being. This is something that when I think about this tradition, I am filled with memory. And I am filled with connection to the, to the people and places that formed this tradition in me. How many people have traditions like that? Where you think of a specific tradition and you remember the beauty, the power of that place, that smell, that person, those people. That is one kind of tradition. Another kind of tradition is the traditions of empire. 
the traditions of power and systems of power. Now, those things that are, we are told are traditional are often the right way to do something. Especially within the church, we're told a lot what the church tradition is. And church traditions are usually justifications of oppression, of violence, of theologies of power and domination. Now, that's not always true. We have those other traditions in spiritual places and churches as well. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. If there was no holiness embodied in our memories and our connections and relationships, we would have nothing left in the church or Christianity to show up for. But the world is full of the voices of those claiming the one tradition. Because when we hear about tradition from empire, we're not hearing about traditions. We are hearing about the tradition, aka the correct way. One of the phrases that comes up a lot in uh, conservative religious spaces that are trying to claim that there is one correct tradition is orthodox. This is the orthodox way to do it. This is the correct way to do it. That is not Sophia. That is the tradition of power. I've got to admit that when I think of tradition, I mostly think of, especially the word traditional, I think of empire's tradition. It makes me cringe. It makes me nervous. It makes me feel a little immediately unsafe. In those contexts, I'm a somewhat non-traditional person. And so it's really hard for me to imagine safety, wholeness, connection in a landscape where the tradition A, doesn't include me, and B, has justified harming people like me and people not like me who I love for decades, generations, centuries, millennia. That tradition is terrifying to me. And so when I started studying in seminary and was encouraged to consider the ways that God works through tradition, I was like, God doesn't, moving on. That's human, never mind. Until I was challenged to think a little bit differently about it. And the theologian who changed my mind about it is a womanist theologian named Karen Baker Fletcher. She argues that there are many traditions. There are traditions within traditions. And that our task is not to reject tradition altogether, but to make choices about whose traditions we carry on. One of her examples is the difference between the traditions of enslavers and the traditions of enslaved people in the history of this country, specifically with regard to Christianity and the scriptures. She talks about how enslaver, she says, slave masters frequently preferred lessons for their slaves that emphasized Paul's injunction that slaves be obedient to your masters. That was the tradition of enslavers and their relationship to Christianity, to the Christian scriptures, and the teachings of Paul. But she contrasts that with the traditions of Christian liberation that were just as alive and well and thriving in that same moment in history that were being held, tended to, cultivated, passed on by enslaved peoples. She talks about the emphasis of enslaved uh, people's spirituality on the book of Exodus, the freeing of the slaves, a pretty important uh, part of the Christian narrative, part of the Holy Scriptures, arguably a much bigger and more prominent one than that phrase from Paul. 
She talks about the prominence of the liberating prophet Moses and how that figure became a critical part of the tradition, the liberating message of Jesus in Luke 4 and in Matthew 25. The Christian tradition of many slaves, she writes, and their descendants then became a separate, very distinctive tradition. She talks about how in these traditions, testimony is key. And I find that really beautiful. I found that to be true in my experience. And I also find it to be a really beautiful way of understanding the difference between the tradition, the traditional ways of empire and the traditions of the margins, the traditions of liberation. Because the traditions of the margins are most preserved, most holy, most passed on through testimony. Testimony can only happen in the context of community and relationship. Testimony is the naming of a lived experience of God. Testimony is a vocalizing of one's awe, of saying, I have lived and I have seen and known. Let me share with you the wisdom that is hard-earned in my life. The God that I know who sees me, the creation that I see myself a part of. This kind of tradition is relational. It's not dominating. It's not even particularly institutional. It is passed on person to person, not through force, but through telling and listening, remembering and recognizing. Wisdom is the testimony of our mothers and grandmothers. Maybe not our mothers and grandmothers of origin, but the mothers, grandmothers, sisters, siblings, chosen family who offer their testimony to us. And we listen because we recognize God in their testimony. We listen because when they speak of the divine, we feel in ourselves a sense of awe. And that is the beginning of wisdom in us. Wisdom is the testimony of the oppressed. So whose traditions are we keeping alive? Are we keeping alive the traditions of those relationships? Are we keeping alive the traditions of connection, of inspiration and awe? In this time, in our culture, we are beginning collectively to examine the violence of settler colonialism. And we understand that part of the project of settler colonialism is ethnic cleansing, and that ethnic cleansing is not just about an erasure of people from a place, but it is about the erasure of culture, of story, of wisdom from a place, from a people, from the earth, from creation. We understand white supremacy culture to be a machine of erasure. Even people who are now understood to be white, who have been white for centuries or generations, who have no discernible culture left other than proximity to power, all once had a local indigenous culture. All peoples going back Generations and generations were indigenous at some point. We were all made and given to this creation by God until people amassed through violence and conquest the land and culture of others. Those folks 
largely but not exclusively white European folks, forfeited their own traditions, their own wisdom, their own testimony, their own awe for the power of empire and conquest. An empire, it is a consuming force. Empire feasts on the destruction of religious traditions, of indigenous wisdom. In the history of this country, we should never forget that the native schools into which indigenous children were forced, separated from their families, one of the most, uh, most violent, most violating experiences for those children, given their testimony, this is what testimony and wisdom they offer back to us, is to say that one of the most violating experiences was being physically punished or beaten for speaking the language of their traditions. They were not allowed to engage in religious tradition, but they were also not allowed to speak the languages of their home, of their family, their ancestors. They were taught English, and they were punished for speaking in their own cultural wisdom. This is how we know and understand from their testimony that it is highly political to protect and pass on native languages. This is wisdom. Elsewhere in the world, an example that has been brought to my attention this week that I can't stop thinking about is the Sabra Hummus Company. Now, I've known a little bit about Sabra. It's been, the hummus, Sabra hummus has been in my grocery stores for a while now. And I've known that those participating in the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divest, and Sanction movement to try and end the apartheid in uh, Israel-Palestine, have been boycotting Sabra for a long time. So I haven't had Sabra in a long time. But in my mind, Sabra was just a, a, a brand of hummus. But this week, I learned that it is not only an Israeli company selling Arab food, right? So that is a, a theft, a cultural theft for profit. An Israeli company marketing Arab food as Israeli and donating the proceeds to the Israeli Defense Forces. But its name, Sabra, before it was a hummus company, was the name of a refugee camp, a refugee camp full of Palestinians in Lebanon who were massacred. And just a few years after the Sabra massacre, the Israeli Sabra Hummus Company was formed, erasing Arab culture erasing Palestinian land, erasing Palestinian people, repurposing history to sell culture for profit and fund state violence. This is the machine of empire that devours traditional wisdom, that devours history and culture and land and peoples and exchanges it for domination and violence. But resistance is finding a way to pass along wisdom anyway. Has anyone noticed 
that the watermelon has become a particularly important symbol lately. If you ask my toddler, Micah, what the watermelon means, she says, free, free Palestine. Does anybody know why the watermelon, though? Seems like kind of an odd image. The reason the watermelon has become such an important uh, image for Palestinian resistance is because many years ago, in the 60s, it became punishable by the military forces of Israel to wave the Palestinian flag or even use the colors of the Palestinian flag. One article notes, after the 1967 Mideast War, the Israeli government cracked down on displays of the Palestinian flag in Gaza and the West Bank. In Ramallah in the 1980s, the military shut down a gallery run by three artists because they showed political art and works in the color of the Palestinian flag, red, green, black, and white. The art wasn't even of the flag, it was just in those colors. The trio was later summoned by an Israeli officer. According to artist and exhibit organizer Silman Mansour, an Israeli officer told him, it is forbidden to organize an exp exhibition without permission from the military. No art, no art without permission from the military. And secondly, it is forbidden to paint in the colors of the Palestinian flag. Forget the colors of your identity. The officer mentioned a watermelon as one example of art that would violate the army's rules. Watermelons being red and green and black and white. In protest, people began to wave the fruit in public. The watermelon is an image of resistance. It is an image of wisdom. It is saying we will find in creation the image of ourselves and our people. You cannot devour us whole. We will find ourselves again and again. We will seek our wisdom, our tradition. We will pass it along. And even as you erase it, it will show up again and again in creation. It will grow from the ground. We will eat it and share it and wave it and celebrate it. We will see. We will see our traditions and our peoples in one another and in the earth. I like to think about wisdom as a fire. A fire that needs tending, that needs stoking. A fire that may be reduced to coals or may burn bright like a bonfire. It may roar. But our job is to keep it alive, to pass it on, to grow it. Our job is to help one another tend the wisdom, the testimony of the oppressed, while empire rages around and smothers culture, devours it. We can keep one another's fires alive. The beginning of wisdom, the beginning of this fire is awe. And so, no matter how much gets smothered, any time we see divinity, in one another, anytime we see divinity at the margins, anytime we see divinity in ourselves, we have the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of Sophia. We are touching the edges of God. 
We are called to see and seek God in all things, to behold the majesty of God's good creation, to find the preciousness of God. And this, this is how we will keep the fires alive. This is how we pass on that wisdom to one another. We will testify. We will never forget. And one day, our fire will grow and grow, and empire will be no longer. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, it is so hard to imagine that the sparks of wisdom in our life can burn brightly enough to outshine the mechanisms of violence and power and empire in the world. And yet, <coughs> we know that when we are unsure, you come to be with us. You shine your light in the darkness, and the empire will not overcome it. May your spark continue to alight in us awe at your goodness, at our goodness, at the goodness of creation. And may we testify. May we listen to the testimony of others. And may those at the margin sing out your praises until our wisdom is so much to behold that even empire kneels down in awe. Amen.